back in the fur shed. I am Jeremiah Wood, and this is the Trapping Today podcast. Thank you for tuning in. It's great to have you here. The podcast is brought to you by Cotts Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z, B-R-O-S.com. Kyle and Kellen Cotts run a trapping supply business out of Savannah, Illinois. A couple of innovative forward-thinking guys in the trapping industry, and it's great to do business with them. They have baits, lures, DVDs. They do a whole bunch of different things. They actually are the sole distributor of the TS-85 Beaver Trap. And if you uh, have some TS-85s, you see their name is on the pan of that trap. Uh, you can hear that story when I interviewed Kyle uh, several episodes back on the podcast. He, he gave us a little background on that. Uh, but I got a few TS-85s uh, in the mail the other day, and as usual... Uh, order from Cots Bros on Sunday night and Monday morning the order is shipped out in the mail. So uh, I got them this week and I was uh, pretty excited to get those and a couple other things. Uh, looking forward to a a small uh, beaver line this spring but something to keep going, you know, stay in the game and, and uh, be setting some traps here. Our season goes through the end of April so pretty excited for um, some of the snow to melt and see some open water maybe in a few places. But anyway, uh, I was actually thinking about putting some expander pans on my TS-85s and uh, probably sometime soon I'll be making an order uh, for a few expander pans uh, to, to get those set up. And if you haven't seen this trap or you, you aren't familiar with it, it's a pretty amazing trap. It's massive, eight and a half inch jaw spread. And uh, it is uh it really, guys, I haven't used it, but guys that I have trapped around and rode around with just swear by the TS-85 for spring beaver trapping. It just increases your catch area by such a uh, large margin. And uh, these expanded pans, I think, will uh, will enhance that even more. So I'm going to give them a shot. But speaking of expanded pans, I have on tonight's episode Chip Davis, the founder operator at expandapantraps.com and uh, Chip is a really neat guy he's got a lot of experience he's he's done a lot of things he's a trapper down in Mississippi so we're going to talk about uh, his background trapping coyotes in Mississippi for the live market a little bit on Mississippi Trappers Association and expandapan traps how that all got started and his thoughts on the expandapans so um Hope you guys enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed talking with Chip, and uh, let's get into the interview. All right, Chip Davis from Mississippi. Um, Chip, it's good to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be sitting in with you tonight. All right, so what I'm going to do is I've, I've got a f- bunch of words here, things that I think of when I think Chip Davis. So I'm going to go through a little bit of this just to give people a little outline of your background, and then I'll let you correct me where I'm wrong or add or subtract from this list. Um, So I've got a Mississippi farmer, a college degree in business, a coyote trapper, primarily a live market coyote trapper, the owner-operator of Expandapan Traps, president of Mississippi Trappers Association, husband, father, family man. We got you covered? That's about it. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like I may have been over-introduced there. But, uh, 
<laughs> well, um, it's kind of funny because we don't really, we've never met in person. I've never been to Mississippi. I don't, you've probably never been to Maine, but, uh, you know, the magic of podcasts, we hear each other talk and, uh, and I feel like I know you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Maine is a beautiful place. I actually was up there a few years ago and, uh, turkey hunted, uh, actually two years back to back and uh, I was unsuccessful my first trip and, uh, and re- did that one, had to repeat that particular state. I'm a huge turkey hunter as well. And, uh, so yeah, I was, uh, I have been to Maine and, uh, it thoroughly enjoyed my time up there and had some lobster and fresh lobster for the first time ever. And, uh, uh, brown bread, is that what you call it? Brown and, bread? Uh, yeah, I think that's what they called it, brown bread, and then the, uh, what is it, whoopie cakes? Is that what Wh- they Whoopie pies, yeah. Whoopie pies, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Okay, so I forgot turkey hunter. You you have some, I, I believe I heard somewhere you had a goal to kill a turkey in every state. Is that it? That is my goal, yeah. We're, uh, we're getting on down the road with that. Uh, I've uh, shot turkeys in, oh, it doesn't matter, but I think 30 eight states now and uh planning a trip to utah and idaho this coming spring here in about six or eight weeks so that is awesome so uh let's talk trapping i'm kind of curious how you got started trapping and what was your first uh experiences on the trap line yeah we had uh my family has had farm from the time i was you know actually i guess before i was born my my granddad came back from world war ii and started farming, and um, of course my dad uh, followed in those steps as well, and and so our family was, uh, you know, was in the the hill section of Mississippi, and that's where they were were living and farming. And we had a guy that was actually a telephone repair man um, that just kind of a I would, wouldn't even necessarily call him a family friend; it's more of a mutual acquaintance. And he was a trapper, and he asked permission. Uh, I was. I guess 14 years old at the time, he asked my dad for permission to trap one of our farms uh, that was relatively rich in wildlife and critters. And um, so my dad gave him permission, but under one premise that he take me and and I was a big hunter and always have been. I guess grew up around that whole sort of thing. And and uh, so Mr. James Tribble, um, dad let him trap and uh, and he took me and. It didn't take but just the, the the very first day, I think, before I got infected with the bug, and I have not gotten rid of that bug yet. <laughs> it was, uh, absolutely at the core of my passion, so I absolutely love trapping and everything uh, that revolves around it. Isn't it pretty interesting how sometimes all it takes is just knowing another trapper, running into somebody else that traps, and it's like, I feel like a lot of us are predisto- predisposed to be trappers. But it isn't until we run into that trapper that we we kind of catch that. Yeah, I think it. Um, you know, I, I, I get. I love these stories. I actually usually I'm typically on the other side of the table doing the interview, and and that's something that I ask guys a lot. And but it's uncanny how many have very very similar stories. You know, either it's usually one or two things I find is. Uh, and I actually I think that's changing, so I might follow back up with that. But it's either. A kid saw a trap hanging in a barn yep. and elder, or it's, it's similar to mine. He was exposed by another, one of the trapper. But you got to remember when I started in the 80s, in the mid 80s, we were still on this this mentality that you didn't tell anybody. I yeah. Mean, we didn't have to then. And 
but that was his fox. And if I t- if I taught anybody or I showed anybody, and because I was a kid at the time, but that was the mentality of most of the trappers. Mm-hmm. And you know, there were no you know publications. They would you know there were a few demos and a, a, I guess fur fishing game and two or three other publications, but they wouldn't you know they wouldn't tell you much. They'd show you what a trap looked like. But they may not tell you how to set it, or that you know they may allude to a little bit of what a lure was, but there there was no information on what the proper way to use it and, and that sort of thing. So it's kind of funny how that's evolved. I said I may circle around on you. I do think that anymore with, and I think this comes directly from the amount of knowledge is out there now that guys are falling into trapping more on their own, more experimental, because they can see this on the YouTube right. and the yep. podcast and, and it, it demos and folks are going in depth with the knowledge. So I think it's a different era than it was when I started. Yeah, I think it kind of has to be because there are so few trappers out there for people to interact with and learn from that they, you know, it, if you don't have someone nearby to teach you and you, you can't get that information online, you're not going to be a trapper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you remember the first trap that you set or the first animal you caught? I do. I, 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 the very first day I ran with Mr. James, um, we set traps. I think that the first actual set I made was a one-and-a-half coil spring duke that we set for a raccoon. Um, our, we had a unique deal there. I was a um, sophomore, I guess, in high school. Um at the time, we could get our driver's license when we were 15 years old. I grew up on the farm, and I was driving. I had my own, quote, unquote, you know, it was a farm truck, but it's the <laughs> truck that I drove all the time um, when I was 13 years old. And my and it was not frowned upon at all for us to, I mean, I'd go to town and go to the grocery store or go to the farm or whatever, go to school or whatever. Yeah. So I was driving before I actually had my license. And so... I don't remember that it was actually the first morning or the second, but it was certainly on that the, when Mr. James it was starting to try to instill some of that knowledge in me. We had hung a snare in a creek on a uh, beaver dam break, and when I walked up to the beaver dam, we had just probably of any more average sized beaver, and that was my first catch. And oh boy, when I saw that, uh, you would have thought that was uh, that was. Probably the culmination of my life at that particular time. So. Yeah, did you? You must have gone out and decided you're going to run a big line after that. Well, well, I told you we had a unique situation. I would run every morning. Mister James had other track lines too. Okay, and so I would run our line together. Then he had some time. He got off work early in the afternoon. Whatever animals we caught, I would dispatch and I'd leave them. And because back in that day, everything was put up. You know, mm-hmm. we put up all the fur anymore. We sell a lot of this southern fur, especially green. But but back then, it was all put up. So I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. He would swing through somewhere when he got done running his line, and he'd pick them up out of the back of my of my truck. And I, when I got out of school. 
I would go and I would help him finish up in the first shed. Um, you know, what usually he was about done by that time. And we would, we would make the run again and reset because I was not at all proficient enough <laughs> that very first year. And, you know, i tell you this. I wish I had somebody I could just leave the critters in the back of my truck and they would take them, <laughs> yeah. them up every morning and take care of them for me now. So. Yeah, yeah. So you've come a long way from, from those days, and, and now you're pri- primarily a coyote trapper. Is that correct? That is correct. We, when we started, um, I think I mentioned it earlier, we didn't have any coyotes in this country then. Um, but <clears throat> I trapped for several, several, several years, and we were primarily fox. We had a lot of grays and quite a few reds, uh, and that's what we – I always loved the land stuff. I really did, um, even though my first catch was water. It was a beaver, but it wasn't long after that. Within the, you know, the next several days, we picked up several raccoons and a possum or two and several fox and that sort of thing. And I just always gravitated toward the land stuff. I just – I enjoy that more, it seems like, and that's kind of what I cut my eye teeth on. But I guess it was probably on up to the mid to late 90s before we started seeing coyotes in numbers here. And um, Well, that's since, much more recent than, than we saw. We saw them probably in the 70s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we were quite a bit later than that. No, in the, the mid 80s, we, we just, there was, they were non-existent wow. uh, in my part of the world. So. Wow. Uh, but yeah, early to mid nineties, early early nineties, I'll say they started influxing in. By the mid nineties, they were very prevalent, and by the late nineties, they had pretty much outcompeted the uh, the fox. I think a lot of guys um, have a misconception of that. You got that, something that happens in water and something that happens on land that are very very similar, I believe. Um, and the the relationship on land a lot of times is red fox and coyotes and the water it's mink and otter yes both both critters eat very very similar diets they they both have uh have very similar habitats that they stay in and obviously a coyote is is just much larger much more prolific i don't know that the coyotes are killing all the red fox i don't know that the otters are killing any of the mink i think that they outcompete them because they're double or triple the size and they have the same habitat requirements and i think that's what we see more often than not yeah that's an interesting observation i i'm just thinking about that in terms of our area here uh, we we i i very rarely catch mink and the otter are extremely uh, abundant here so we're, we seem to be seeing that trend because i talked to Old timer trappers, they used to be mink trappers. That's what they did, and mm-hmm. uh, it, it's hard to, you know, you could still trap mink here and there, but they're not, they don't appear to be in the abundances that they once were. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, so. yeah, that's that's the same story here too. When I was learning in the eighties, that we uh, there's a lot of guys that caught a lot of mink in our state. Uh, we recently had our Mississippi Trappers Association first sale, our annual first sale we have in February of each year. And um, I think I saw three mink through the entire sale. Wow. And if this had been 30 years ago, there may have been, I, I, I'd hate to even hazard a guess, you know, yeah. in the in high hundreds or thousands of mink probably 30 years ago, you know. And, yeah. But we did have quite a few otter. The otter basically just taken the place, much similar to the coats and the red fox. Uh, our red fox have been relegated to town now. They hang out on the edge of town and they're garbage eaters. So that's about the only place that that you catch them anymore um and and there are a few around um i caught one a couple of years ago and saw one 
this year that I actually stepped far. Uh, had one on game camera. Uh, didn't actually see him, but but yeah. Um, but that, I just think that's what's happened. Yeah. So, what can you tell us about this live market thing? For us northern guys, we don't we don't hear much about that. We hear occasionally mentioned, but we don't really understand it. It is more of a heritage thing. I don't have. I'm only involved in it from the trapping side of things. Um, hounds and using of the use of hounds and hunting is a tradition as old as the South itself, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up deer hunting in what we call a dog club, quote unquote. Um, and basically, they would run the, uh, the whitetail deer with dogs, and um, and there's that's still done to this day. Some. Really? Uh, Yep, and and so that's kind of what started the whole thing. Uh, guys were, and, and it's a huge market. Guys spend a lot of money on their hounds, and you know, and they'll have big competitions, field trial competitions, and you know, Strike Joe, he had the jump on this one, and you know, and and this dog is, you know, old Blackie, he's uh, he's leading the pack. He's got the big drive and endurance, or whatever, and they. They've got several criteria that they judge the hounds on. Most of the pens are, um, they, they still refer to them as fox pens, but but they're stocked with coyotes, and okay. they just refer to that as game. Uh, some of the, the fox pens will still buy fox when they can get their hands on them, but it's, it's gonna, I'm going to say it's 90-plus percent coyotes anymore, maybe 95%. Um, so that's what it's about. Uh, there's very few states that, that it's legal in, and I think that goes back to the heritage thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I catch a coyote and I sell him into the live market, he's uh, he goes into a huge enclosed pen. And when I say pen, don't think of a dog pen in the backyard. These things sometimes can be 2,500, 3,000 acre pens. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, they've got uh, top enclosures and underground wire on the around the edges usually uh also incorporated is a uh they'll actually train those cats they'll put them in a slightly smaller enclosure with a hot wire around it for a week or so just to get them used to that hot wire and they seldom get out they they most of the time when they go in the pen they're in the pen for uh you know they'll live their their life out there now the dogs do not catch and kill the coyotes that's a misconception a lot of guys think and uh, but it's, it's just a huge market the whole hound thing is and so so people uh, just want to watch their hounds work primarily that's exactly right yeah and our uh, sitting on the tailgate and listen to them a lot of times they run in the summertime at night and so those guys will they won't turn the, their dogs loose until 10 10 30 at night sometimes and they'll sit there to two three o'clock in the morning just Visiting, catching up on old times, talking about hounds of, of old, and uh, and it's just uh, it's just kind of almost a uh, old tradition way of life type type of thing down here. Um, there's several southern states. I think up in the Carolinas, it's uh, you know this this legal even not all even uh, southern states is it legal in. So it's just kind of a, a a niche really that fits us it doesn't fit uh it doesn't fit folks from all across the country but it is a niche that does fit us so it's interesting because you you're in an area where the the fur is you know you're not top, talking about top quality fur it's it's a warm mm-hmm. climate so the fur is not as prime but you have the opportunity to get uh, a little better price 
for these coyotes for the live market, but you have to take some precautions. You, you trap a little differently than I might trap up here in Maine for coyotes. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, when I trap here again, that's just kind of what I've evolved to do. Um, you know, our, our fur is not the same quality. Uh, I've had lots of opportunities to travel around the country and attend lots of different shows and, you look at a coyote that comes from Mississippi and a coyote that comes from Maine, and then they call them both a coyote, but they're not—they're not both the same animal. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, we just—we don't have the fur on them. There—I mean, that's the reason the stark difference in the money uh, there. So, yeah, we kind of—you uh, know—we kind of picked lemons and made lemonade a little bit, and uh, I think that's what all of us as trappers have to do to a certain degree. Um, and the equipment that we use is quite a bit different. One of the criteria because these coats are going to be you know in that pen for a long time they want healthy feet they don't want cuts they don't want uh certainly any kind of broken bones or anything like that and and there are some things that we can do with our equipment um that a fur trapper there's no need for him to do mm -hmm. but you know the the traps i use are extremely gentle um, on their feet uh i tell guys if you're a fur trapping, this is not necessarily the trap for you at all. There's a good solid sound traps, but they are all, there's no need to go this. When I talk about cuts, and this is something I'm always trying to be careful about, I'm talking, usually it's not even a cut. Usually it's an abrasion. Mm -hmm. um, it is not uncomfortable to the animal. It is not a, uh, it's almost like if you've worked with a wooden handle, anything, a shovel, a hoe in the garden or whatever, and, and you do that for two or three hours and your hands are not calloused up and tough, you're going to have a similar type type of, of, of issue with your hands. Well, you know, that's your, and your hands will probably be tender for a day or two. Well, you know, that's what they don't want. This is not at all inhumane. It's not saying that, you know, regular stock traps in any way, shape, or form. Our modern-day equipment we are we're the whole trapping industry has just gone so far into uh taking care of what we of, of what we catch we want to treat that animal as humanely as possible so when i talk about a cut this is not a deep cut i mean i can't tell you when and most of the traps off the off the shelf anymore even you're seldom are going to get a, a some any kind of fracture bones or anything and the cuts i'm talking about are more abrasions or whatever but when my buyer is buying those coats he's pretty closely inspecting all four feet you know um you know snare caught coats are sometimes a plus and different things like that so we just choose our equipment to match what we're doing yeah that's funny i was thinking when you were saying that i get a three-year-old boy and he's jumping off the couch and running all over the place and he's got more cuts and abrasions i don't think they'd accept him for the live market yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> right that's right but you know but you're but you're not mistreating him anyway you're, uh, anyhow you're, i try not that, to <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, sometimes you gotta smack him around a little bit so. yeah so um that that that's really interesting I, and and you talk about you so you're using like uh the 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 certain trap design you've got swivels you you've even got you use shock springs and i don't you know i've never i don't use shock springs at all but um it's interesting you just you take all that into consideration for that live market you even think about shoulder injuries is that right that's correct that's that that's my purpose with shock springs it's uh it's um it's, it's, sh it's shoulder stuff you can't see that um you know 
you and I both could set a trap, one with shock springs and one without shock springs, and we're going to have very, very similar product. If those coyotes are going directly to a field trial, especially some of these really high dollar, some of these hounds will sell for twenty, thirty thousand dollars easy, wow. relatively commonplace. Uh, they artificially, artificially inseminate the uh, you know the females and some of that. You know, some of that frozen can go for, you know, $1,000 a straw. I mean, this, this is a big, big market. So sometimes we sell directly to a trial where a lot of these big dogs are, are, are running together. And if, if my trap does not have a shock spring and yours does, you just stand a chance that that coat, you know, maybe not every time does he develop a shoulder strain. Um, yeah. But – but if he does, if he hits the end of that, that trap just right, um, then it's just a little bit of extra insurance policy. That's the sole reason I use them. Uh, that's, that's all. Yeah. Uh, if I were market, uh, only that's, that's, I wouldn't even be considering it probably. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you had a good season this year. You, I heard you guys got a lot of rain. Boy, we had, uh, yeah, we did. Our catch was percentage-wise, where our numbers were good. Um, our, our rain, our weather, and our climate this year was just unbelievable. It was record rainfall. Um, it was just um, I, I did not have, a, nor did many people that I talked to have the opportunity to trap anywhere close to what they typically do or would like to. It was just, uh, I mean, literally twice a week, every single week, I believe from from. November through February, we had at least an inch of rain. I mean, wow, this, that's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, you know, and it'd be pretty one day, and, and you say, you know, crisp and cool, and and uh, you say, boy, I sure do want to go set a big coat line, and you look at the weather, and tomorrow night they're talking about 90% chance of, of two or two to three inches of rain or, or sleet or snow. <laughs> yeah, what's the point of setting? Exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I was... I probably set half the traps that I typically set in a year. And it wasn't because I didn't want to. And it wasn't because anything got in the way as far as life. It was just weather, you know. Yeah. Now, are you still farming or are you leasing out your land? I am not farming. I leased out my land a couple of years ago. And um, that has been working out really, really well for me. Um, I've had a chance to opportunity to do some other things that, that I want to do and gave me a little bit of extra time and um and much needed a lot less stress and so that was uh yeah i am i am out of the the active farming um as most people would know it uh currently so that's awesome so um i want to transition a little bit into uh chip as the entrepreneur businessman um because a lot of people know you from expand a pan traps uh, can you tell us a little bit about how, wh- where'd you get the idea about this uh, and, and how this all get started? I would love to tell you that I came up with the idea of the big trap hands, but I did not. Um, I heard about this from a guy that many people will, the name will resonate with them, uh, Clint Locklear, who has Trapping Radio podcast. I think that may have even been the original Trapping podcast out there. It was, yeah. And um, so I heard I heard Clint talking about. It's kind of interesting how that happened. 
I'm almost never sick. I just, I just seldom do I ever get sick, but I don't know how long it's even been. It's been eight or nine years ago. I got the flu and it was a really bad strain of flu that came through and it laid me up. I was in bed for like four or five days and um, it's right in the middle of the winter, right when I should have been wanting to be trapping. And there's no way. I mean, you're talking about 102 <laughs> plus temperature and, and yep. you know, nausea and just sick as sick as sick can be. And I ran across. And so what I did, that was actually in the early days of, I guess maybe YouTube had been around a little bit, but I was just kind of getting, you know, I guess exposed to it some. It's amazing how that seems like that should have been way longer than 10 years ago with YouTube, when YouTube yeah. was for prevalent, but it really wasn't. No. So, uh, But that's where I kind of ran across uh, Clint's Wolfer Nation, and then uh, I kind of got to listening to his Trapper Radio and our Trapping Radio, um, and and so I started following along. He started talking about these, these big pans. Well, I was already a fabricator just by necessity on the farm. Uh, you know, we made stuff all the time. And, um, and so I started researching the history of where these big pans came from. And, and later on, Clint and I um, got to know each other, and we actually became really, really good friends and still are to this day. I actually chatted with Clint just a, a, probably about an hour ago. He called me um, uh, this afternoon, and we were, we were talking and, and about something totally different. So at any rate, I quizzed him. Was, hey, where did the big pan idea come from? Um, and Clint had actually been out west and taking instruction from Greg a couple of different times, and uh, and that's where Clint learned about the you know the, the all the big pan idea and that whole excuse me <clears throat> principle and premise and theory. And um, I actually had a chance to visit with uh, with Mr. Craig one time, and I asked Mr. Craig uh, how he found out about them and i think he had heard about them from another government trapper back in the heyday of that and and even further told me that it, they were referenced all the way back to a publication in the 20s <laughs> and um and i actually had kind of put that out there a little bit and i was happened and i found out the name of the publication and i don't know if you go to me the convention sometimes guys at conventions i have tables full of old trapping literature. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost more of a collector's item or a historic thing. And I actually found that publication and, uh, and they were talking, this is like era that this is a publication of 19. Oh golly. I wish I, I, I need to have that thing. I, I, I find it again and buy a copy of it and have that framed here. But uh, it's mid mid 1920s. And that article had referenced Hudson Bay um, uh, trading company and some and some literature that they had put out about using big pans all the way back to the you know to the early to mid I guess 1800s. So the idea has been around a long, long, long time. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, so just so people understand, basically what you're doing is providing a retrofitted pan to put on to all of these traps that essentially it takes away all of that empty space between the pan and the trap jaws. That's correct. And what we're, what we're combating is what we call pattern misses, where an animal will step inside the jaws of your trap, but not step on your pan. You ask him to step right here, right in that spot that I'm pointing to. And he did. He stepped right in that right spot but you missed him by an inch or two inches or 
three inches some cases. What expanded pans typically do is, and, and we're making, uh, we are making trap pans for 32 different models of traps right now. And uh, our average probably, and I, and I need to actually run these numbers so I have an exact number, but we're probably averaging 215 to 230% increase in surface area. And so surface area exact is just a bigger trigger is what it is. You know, that's what, uh, your pan is the trigger that fires the trap. And now we just made that trigger a lot, you know, a lot larger in size. And all that equates to surface area. There's a lot of physics that goes along with that. And, and, um, and so, you know, each one of them are, are different. Each model of trap are different. Um, you know, I'll have a lot of guys, you know, they'll ask me, what all does this fit? Well, it only fits what, you know, what, what we designed it for because right. we, our, our process is, is we'll take one single individual trap. We have to have the physical trap here. And uh, we've got a, a whole process that we go through with lots of calculations, lots of measurements. Uh, and, and it's pretty much exact. Um, you know, there's certain tolerances that you have to leave in different places, not all just around the, the jaws. Sometimes you got to allow for levers and springs and uh, numerous different things. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a big process, and um, you know uh, we're covering pretty much all of the modern stuff now. Uh, some of the really old. What we basically evolved to doing is we'll make them based on our demand. Uh, yeah. We started with six or eight different uh, trap models that we were making, and as guys. Um, you know, you know, when we get, it's, it's no certain number, but when we had enough calls for a particular model, and we'd, we'd get one of those, and we'd, we would start making that trap. And, and so as a result, I've uh, had an opportunity to have my hands on a whole lot more different models and makes of traps than probably I typically would have otherwise, because, you know, we'd buy one single of a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so if people have seen these, they're, they're really funky looking in some cases because you have to cut out those notches. So when the levers come up, they don't hit the pan and mm -hmm. it, you know, you got to get, you got to get around all those obstacles. So you, what do you have some sort of a, a plasma cutter or something to, to cut out those shapes? Yeah, we cut every one of them on a plasma. Um, it's a CNC uh, plasma. So once that design, that initial design is done, Every single one of them are exactly the same. Um, we make them all here in, in house. Um, you know, we don't stamp them. Uh, we don't ship them overseas or all that. Every single one of them is made right here in the building that I'm sitting in talking to you right now. Um, and so, yeah, we pretty much cut every single day. Uh, and it takes that to keep up with our demand. Um, um, and so, yeah, that's, um, that's kind of the process. So, you know, Every MB550 expander pan looks like every other MB550 expander pan. You know, every Bridger 3 Douglas is, looks like every other three Bridger 3 Douglas expander pan. So whatever the case may be, they're all computerized. So the computer actually does all those fine cuts and, and that sort of thing. And, and what does it take to, so someone buys these pans and they want to put them on their existing traps. Uh, is there commonly are they welded on are they bolted on what what does it take to get that on your trap there we're just about 50 50. um you take a trap 
probably the most common or most popular trap in the United States right now, at least on the you know the newer stuff is the MB five fifty. They kind of own the market as far as the late model new you know new business. There's a lot of guys running them. Uh, good trap, you know, really good trap. Um, that particular trap does not carry a pan bolt. The pan on there rides on the spring keeper, so it's it's really really difficult to make a bolt on. A pan for the MB550 when it doesn't carry a bolt to start with. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's just about impossible. That has to be a weld on. Other particular models um, are easier to do a weld on uh, design. I will say this we call them weld ons. We've got guys that actually, you know, drill three holes and pop and do pop rivets there to attach okay. them. We've got guys that just that, that physically weld them on. Uh, that's fine. We've got guys that literally will take self-tapping screws and screw and screw the original you know that weld-on expander pan to the original pan and that works great so you don't necessarily have to weld them on or have to be a welder or have access to that to to utilize a weld-on pan the other 50 percent roughly speaking of our of our uh trap pans that we make are bolt-ons and they basically are replacement pans you will remove your your old pan a good example of that is what we call the bridger complexes the bridger twos and threes both doggone and dog lists um all four of those traps they're really really common there's a lot of a lot of guys use those out there mm-hmm. you'll just remove your you know your pan bolt and uh re- you know remove your old pan and your stock pan that came with the trap and replace that with expand the pan and increase your surface area by a couple hundred percent yeah all right, so now I would be crazy if I didn't ask you the c- most common question or most common concern you get with expanded pans. I know you already know what this is. Uh, <laughs> the toe catches. What can you mm-hmm. tell us about that? I love to get the question. Um, and it's somewhat of a lengthy answer. But I'm going to tell you why I like getting the question because it shows guys are thinking. Um, and chappers are thinkers. And so I, I, I love fielding that question because I know I'm talking to a guy that's put some thought process into this question and, 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 and just kind of because common sense would say, okay, you got this big pan, the animal can step on it from way and fire the trap from way out on the side. And we just, why were you not even getting misses or marginal catches? Most people call them uh, toe catches, but it can be marginal in a lot of different ways. Right. Um, and so when we were first introduced to this idea, I heard Clint talking about this and I had a, uh, the, you know, some tooling in my farm shop that, that we could start it, start this process. And we just made them for ourselves and we ran them for a couple of years and we saw some significant increases in the, our catch percentages. And I'm a numbers guy. I keep up with that. I run, I'm an Excel geek, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I put everything in spreadsheets and keep up with, with this and, you know, with our catches and that kind of thing. And we were seeing some significant increases in catches. What was interesting is we were not seeing because I was in the same camp. I said we well, got the big pan. I'm going to try them because I think it's a really cool idea. But I bet you we're going to see a bunch of more marginal catches than what we're used to. And our marginal catches went drastically down. 
And then I really started scratching my head and saying, all right, this right. is not my What on earth does that mean? Because it doesn't make sense exactly. what you think. Yeah, well, I was the same way. I, I promise you. I, I was like, you know, this this is not making sense. About the time that that happened, when I was really having these thoughts, it's a crazy thing that happened, but I happened to trade cell phones. And I've been an Apple guy for a long time. And I, I forget what model it was, but I bought an iPhone um that happened to come with a slow motion camera and it took a week or two to, to figure out how to use that, that function of that phone. And I said, you know what, this may help me understand what's going on with this. And cause being a trapper and a fabricator and, and a little bit of lean toward technology anyway, I set up that slow motion camera and I bet you we fired 500 <laughs> with, with a stick. And there's so much that you can learn there. Yeah. And we fired, a trap from every single angle we fired stop traps with regular pans we fired uh we fired you know traps equipped with expander pans this is what we found when the first thing is and and to give you the background on this i had a stick that was that we used and and you can even see this on my youtube channel it, it, there's there's a couple of different uh videos up there of that but we whittled this stick out to be roughly the size. It didn't look a lot like a coyote foot, but it was roughly the same size as a coyote's foot. And uh, that's what we were thats what we were using to fire the traps because I wanted something to be very, very similar to what, I, what, my, fun, you know, what my purpose was yeah. with, with that particular uh, uh, apparatus, i.e. what involved to be expand the pads. Um, so... I found that the foot had to be at least 50% or more on the pan to achieve trap fire. If it was less than that, you then the, the trap jaw and the bedding of the earth around the trap it held jaw the foot up. Would, would, yes, would, would, be, would be sufficient to not allow the foot to depress the pan and fire the trap. Okay, so, so that's the first thing that we found is, is we had to have at least 50% of the weight on the pan itself. Mm -hmm. The next thing we found is when we had 50 plus percent of the foot on the pan itself and the trap fired, we had two phenomena of physics going on at the exact same time that resulted in much more centered and much deeper catches. And I'll try to verbally explain these. You can, like I said, it's easier explained when you see the video that we recreated and put on YouTube on our on our channel but um yeah that is that just expand a pan traps channel yeah yeah, yeah you, actually if you just search youtube for expand a pan that's our channel okay yeah. and um and so um and, and that video that i'm talking about is on there or there's actually a couple of those on there but basically what happens is with you know with more than 50 percent on there you're going to achieve trap fire imagine just imagine your mind's eye when he's when he's more than 50 percent on the paint the jaw of the trap forces his foot toward the center of of the the whole trap itself. The jaw does, because, you know, it, because that's that's where he where he's at. He's more than fifty percent, so he's not thrown off. He's thrown toward the center. Okay. The next the next thing that happens at the exact same moment in time is the inertia of the springs uncoiling, or if it's a long spring of of the springs, uh, you know, relaxing. Um, or decompressing, it causes that trap to to appear to jump in the air. That's happening at the exact same time the animal's foot is being forced toward the center of the trap. 
Okay. So, so, so those two phenomena that are happening at the exact same time result in deeper uh, catches and more centered catches than we were seeing without the expanded pan. So then we had another big dilemma after that. Or I could buy that. I could see the physics that, that was proven with the slow motion footage. Uh, and we did this hundreds of times. Um, and we and it absolutely was proven to us that we were seeing deeper, more centered catches with those. But I could not figure out why in the world we were seeing uh, a greater number of marginal catches without the pans. You know, I, I can understand why with the pans we're not seeing them. But why uh, as much? But why are we seeing dramatically more marginal catches with a stop pan? Right. And so this is my theory, and I cannot prove this. I've done. I've thought about this hours and hours, and I've tried to recreate this a ton, and it's just hard to do. Um, if you imagine how an animal walks across the ground, and it really makes no difference to the animal, but the literal physics of how he puts his foot on the ground. Most animals have a role, even humans, to to their steps. They're basically the, the backside of, of their foot or paw or, or whatever. A human would be a foot and the animal would be a paw, I guess. It usually hits the ground first, the pad, and, and then the last thing, and it rolls till all that foot is in contact with the ground, and the last thing that hits is the toes. And usually that is in, the foot is already in an upward motion there when the, you know, when the toes are, are, are leaving the ground. Just imagine how you walk yourself. Yep. All right, so this is my theory. Here again, this is, a, I can absolutely prove and show you on the slow motion video how, on the first one I just got through talking about. But the second, of, of, you know, why are we seeing more marginal catches when we got a smaller pan or even a cut down pan? You know, there was a time in the, um, you know, the early 1900s or, or I'm talking 1930, 40, that's very, very, very small pans got to be. Oh, yeah, I've got some beaver traps. The pans are cut to a third of their original size. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is what, this is what we, what my theory is. As so say we've got a toenail or a toe or two toes or three toes on the pan. It takes a certain amount of pressure on that pan to fire the trap. But that that motion of that leg is already in an up Upward, motion. Yeah. But, but because you, you, you roll it, the, the back of that foot and the rest of that foot is an upward motion. The only thing that's got a downward tendency at that time is the very, very toe. Uh, I do a little demonstration at, at, at nationals and uh, a lot of the shows I go to, and and this is what I do. I'll put either a twenty dollar bill on the table, or or I'll put a, uh, a you know a pack of expanded pans on there, and I'll find somebody young. I love to get you know kids to help me with this, especially like teenage kids or baseball players are the best. They got great eye hand coordination, and what I'll do is I hold those their hand right over just say that $20 bill on the table. And I'll put mine, say, three inches above it. And there's one rule. They can't move their hand until they see me move mine. And I will reach down and I'll grab that 20 and I'll have it picked up and almost behind my back before their hand can ever hit there. You know, and, I, and I've actually got a little thing I'll do. I'll, I'll do this about three times. I'll get further and further and further away with my hand. And I'll beat them every time. The only rule is they can't move until they see 
my hand move. So he, I, the reason I do that is I illustrate the same thing happens with a coat. That's a stimulus. It takes three-tenths of one second for uh, impulse to go from your brain through your nervous system uh, to fire those, those receptors in your muscles to contract to react to that. In three-tenths of a second, I can close a trap. In three-tenths of a second, I can reach down and grab a $20 bill or a pack of expander panels away from a guy before he can react to it because he's waiting on a stimulus. That stimulus is feeling the trap close. The animal still has that three-tenths of a second reactionary time as well. We do as humans. Animals do as well. I mean, that's just the way that God made us. It takes a split second for those for those electrons to run through your nervous system to react to something. So that's no different with the, with the coyote's feet. The only difference is with the bigger pans, he's always in a downward motion for, at trap fire. And that downward motion is very, very important. And I know this is a long way to answer or end around to answer your question, but this is what it boils down to is there's a downward motion that fires the trap with the bigger pans. It has to be because he has no room to fire the trap with an upward motion. You've got to jaw the trap and the earth around it that prevents the trap from firing, uh, you know, with the downward motion because the rest of his weight is supported. With the small pans, with the stock pans, or even a cut-down pan, his foot is already in upward motion if he happens to fire that trap with two with two toes. Yeah. And because in upward motion, you still may catch him, but you're going to catch him much, much shallower on his foot, maybe by a toenail, maybe by two toes, maybe by you know whatever marginality you want to you want to refer to that as but that's but that's my theory um if i could absolutely uh prove that with a video i promise you i'd already have that out there <laughs> it, it, it certainly makes common sense to me and i've given a lot of thought and a lot of effort on how to do that but basically a verbal explanation and, and i know that's a lot a lot of words to say that but that verbal explanation is the best i can that i can can do and, and, and that's theory I, the, you know that's that's what i think is happening well i like your theory it makes a lot of sense to me and i tried to visualize that as you explained it and and uh it, it really clarifies things um so the guys like me the guy that taught me to trap was an O'Gorman guy um and he he was into the the wire screen pan covers and basically mm -hmm. the pan cover would be the entire area between the you know, covering the inside of the jaws. Uh, how do the expanded pans differ from just having like a big wire screen pan cover over the, the whole entire space in between the jaws? Well, one, one difference is you don't have to uh, own stock in the Band-Aid Corporation from cutting yourself from, from cutting the... Because <laughs> 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 if you cut them, you bled. Uh, yeah. they, they, they are a pain to deal with. The wire screens do absolutely increase surface area. Um, they do. That's their function, and, and they do extremely well on that. Um, I was a fan of wire screens before I went to, uh, to these. these. The expander pans just make it so much easier than, than dealing with that. But the advantages are very, very much the same. Um, here again, I don't want to sound like the used car salesman just, just uh, you know, doting on our product, but the, the, typically the wire screens a lot of times are one or two use uh, product. And, yeah. You know, 
usually after that, especially with a catch, if it remains in a catch circle, if you're not on a drag or something, then um, then those things get chewed up and beat up pretty badly. Um, so that's, you know, with expanded pans, you're pretty much one and done. I mean, we occasionally have a bend, but it's, it's not common at all. And what, when we do, you can typically straighten those out and go right back to work for the rest of the season. Now, I'm assuming that a guy who uses uh, expanded pan, you're not going to need any pan cover whatsoever or any uh, uh, polyfill or anything under the pan? You're correct, except for you are narrowing the distance between the jaw of the trap and the pan. And And because of that, depending on the soil type, um, some of the stuff, the clay that I trap in, it can be really, really dry and easy to work with today, and it can rain tonight. We can have a freeze, or we can have 90-degree weather. We're all over the board down here with our weather during trapping season. And if we have a lot of sun, we can bake that dry dirt that got wet after the rain into a brick. I don't want anything that will impede that trap from falling. So what I typically do I was already a peat moss guy anyway. Um, I use peat moss, and my only function for the peat moss is just to bridge those gaps in between the pan and the jaw itself. That's okay. all. Just to keep keep some of that clay from falling into those gaps? Just to keep my sift dirt from falling in. That's okay. all I'm trying to do is just bridge those gaps. I use... I've got big hands, but I use about a palm full, and I'll throw it right on the center of the pan. Literally, it takes me a half a second to do that. I'll turn my glove hand upside down, and I'll whisk it about twice one way and twice the other, and typically, I'm done there. Um, you know, All I'm doing is just building that bridge, and then I'll grab my sifter and sift it right over the top of it, um, getting to be a big fan of grass clippings, or you know, I'll, I'll sift grass clippings right, right over whatever the case may be. But, but yeah, that's, uh, that's what I do. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. So um, anyway, if guys want to check those pans out, it's expandapantraps.com. Is that right? That is correct. Yes, sir. All right. Um, so that's that's awesome, Chip. I appreciate that explanation. It really makes a lot of sense and, and uh, helps helps us understand that the whole expanded pan concept a lot more. Um, a couple more things. Uh, Mississippi Trappers Association. How on earth did you get involved in that? I know, I know you've... In the last few years, you've been really big on promoting trapping. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's important for all of us to promote trapping. Um, you know, trapping is is a little bitty part of a small genre out there. I guess we would fall under the outdoors type of you know um, orientation or whatever. But you compare us to deer hunting or turkey hunting or duck hunting or or anything else we're so small we've got to stick together we've got to band together my first exposure to mississippi travels association that i'm going to refer to as mta for the balance of, of this there's several mtas from mississippi to yep main, tra- main trap association yeah that's right um but for the balance of this podcast i'm going to re- refer to mta as mississippi travel association i went to um back again i was 14, 15 years old with Mr. Jones Tribble, and he took me to some of these events. I went to uh, our annual meeting that we had, and, and I remember some comments. You know, Mr. James quickly became my mentor, um, 
he is still to this day a guy that I really respect and, and admire and how he's lived his life and, and I've had in my own life a lot after him and what he taught me and those type things. It was important to him. I saw his passion for that organization um, and I developed the same thing, I think, just probably as a result. It is almost kind of the same answer as how I got into trapping. I, 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 it just became a passion and the same thing happened with MTA. It just it became a passion that was attracting in my home state that was not done very much. There's not a lot of trappers down here, um, you know, very, very, very few. And I had an opportunity to uh, to leave the organization, and and I'd like to think that maybe we've uh, we've grown what we've uh, what we've done. We we're we're making strides here. Uh, there's a lot of things we actually had, to my knowledge, the first in the country almost televised um, our own demand convention this past September. We had it at a yeah, Bass Pro, Pro, yeah. Yep. And uh, on our website, and I will give that out too, it's just mstrappers.com. Um, and there's a section under there that I think it says convention demos, and we recorded every demo that was done there. There's some big names at this thing. Um, and... They were all of those demos are available on demand. They're on YouTube, yeah. Absolutely free. Yep. And um, and I'm not aware of another association that's put that that kind of information out there. Um, and so it's it's like a virtual tour of a convention, you know. So uh, uh, that's kind of what we did, and and it's just you know unique ideas, and and uh, I you know I would like to say I'm smart enough to think of, of some of those, but most of those are copies. Most of those I've got a great group of guys around me and some really forward thinkers and and some guys that are really versed in the technology. And, and these tools are available to us. And this this is just a tip of the iceberg. And there's so much more that we can do to educate the public of what we're doing. So a guy in Maine can literally at his computer on his cell phone watch the demos that were done last last September in Coral, Mississippi at our, at our Mississippi convention. So uh, it's pretty neat. But... Yeah, I can tell you one guy that's done it already. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that uh, the thing that I really like about that is that you had it in a Bass Pro Shops. So all the people that are going into there that have no exposure to trapping, all of a sudden, hey, what's going on over there? You know, it, it was a great opportunity there. Well, there the date was very, very uh, thought out on how we chose that date. We had it on the last weekend of September. Our bow season opens on October the 1st. Okay. That is the, the busiest day. Um, and obviously that store kept a lot of analytics. Um, yeah. Some of the management there. That's the busiest uh, besides the Christmas season. But for when you're targeting actual outdoorsmen. I'm not necessarily talking about sales because they probably topped that with the you know, with the ladies in there, you know, buying gifts around the holidays for their sons or husbands or whatever uh, that are outdoorsmen. But um as far as true sportsmen, they're out, out there pursuing wildlife in whatever form or fashion there is. That was one of the busiest weekends they had and that's the, the weekend that we chose to um to hold our convention, and that was very, very much on purpose. Um, you know, we um, the, the thing that I would caution against that is we do have a group of people out there nationwide that are against what we do, mm -hmm. and they are 
they're as passionate about their position and sometimes maybe even more than we are about ours, you know, and, and I'm pretty passionate about traffic. You know, there's not a lot. But so you've got to have contingency plans and you've got to do these type of things with a lot of tact. And, you know, you, you've got to be uh, real careful of what you say and how you present your information. But our goal was to make, it was to increase the awareness of trapping in our state, and, and we did that in the, you know, the the one facility at the at, you know, at the one location that was probably had the biggest single day gathering of of, of wildlife consumers, at, you know, there, and so that was that was what we did, and that was our thought process behind that. Yeah, that is awesome. I like it. All right, so let's move on uh, from MTA. And I, I have one more thing I want to cover, and I, I thought we ought to, we really ought to give a shout out to Clint and Trapping Radio because I forgot to mention early on in the show that you are a occasional host of Trapping Radio, and and you're going to be on here uh, shortly. Yeah, um, I've actually got this uh, this week's um, uh, couple of shows this week that I'm going to be filling in for Clint. Clint's got a couple of family issues he's dealing with, but. I'm going to wait and let him explain to you what he's got going on, he's facing there. But uh, but he, he basically, I just, he asked me if I'd fill in for him, and, and I do occasionally, um, and it, it just it just depends. So I'm, I'm sometimes I'm on once a month, sometimes it's once every six weeks, sometimes every couple of months. It just depends on what Clint's got going on. Clint and I are really, really good friends. Um, we trap together every year. Uh, we hunt together every year. And uh, so I just fill in as guest host for him. Uh, if you're not familiar with Trapping Radio, you can find that podcast at trappingradio2.com. And right now there are three shows weekly that are there. Um, most of those are archived that you can listen to at any time. Uh, there's Trapping Radio. That was the original uh, host we actually outgrew that server or clint did and so now you've actually got to put the number two this trapping with ing radio the number two dot com and you'll be able to see the most recent shows you can scroll down to the bottom and say archives and we're approaching 400 shows on there now i just did one a couple of weeks ago and i forget the number i think we're 360 or maybe 370 something episodes already and so but yeah one one a week goes up new but you can archive them anytime if you if you want to catch the new one it usually airs on friday night additionally uh clint does something that's called rant of a free trapper and um he's actually about to expand that to something completely new that's called man strong um some lessons that he has learned and observed uh just being a man that's more of a uh a little bit, it's usually trapping weaved in and out of, of all that. Trapping radio is pure trapping. Uh, the rant is a little bit, touches more on some political type stuff, some more life lesson type stuff. And then additionally, on Monday nights, there is um, a good friend of mine by the name of Tim Roper uh, does a podcast called Meat Trapper Radio. And his is typically more about substance and um in preparedness and not necessarily all prepping but um you know hey uh, tim's a great guy he traps a lot of trap with him each and every year as well and 
but he did, he, I don't know that he's ever sold anything into the fur market. He traps exclusively for meat to feed himself uh, and some great, great recipes that, that he takes right off his trap line and feeds his family with. So pretty, pretty interesting stuff on that, on that um, trapping radio too. Yeah, it is. TrappingRadio2.com and uh, Meat Trapper Radio. He's 142 episodes in. And Trapping Radio, it looks like 340 episodes. And I know for a fact that I spent a lot of time in the summer uh, outside of trapping season l- listening into those back episodes. And there's just so much there. Uh, probably my favorite is that episode with uh, when Clint interviewed Tom Miranda at the NTA. That was really awesome. Yeah, yeah, that was um, the, the most recent one. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, interesting. I was uh, actually at that show, and I'm trying to remember. That actually may have even, I think it did take place. I may be mistaken on that. I think it take, took place in my camper. So, uh, <laughs> sometimes at, the, at these shows, because Clint and I both are manning booths there, and he'll, he'll come over there, and, and he kind of hold his hand out. I know what that means. Just, hey, talk to the kids. You're, you're <laughs> So, uh, uh, he's actually got a camper of his own. So, uh, I guess mobile global headquarters of Trapping Radio is about to change it, now. Yeah, there's but, probably going to be a lot more interviews co- to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, Chip, I, I really appreciate it. Um, we spent an hour here, and I know you're a busy man. And thank you for your time. And, and uh, it's just great to have you on. It sounds good, Jeremiah. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to hang out with you guys for a little bit. Uh, I always love talking to trappers and, and talking trapping. It's some, some, purely some of my favorite things to do, and, and the favorite way to spend time uh, is hanging out with the North American trapper. I think they're the best folks in the whole wide world. So. Awesome. All right, Chip, take care.